If I tell you a story from my perspective, that might not resonate. So I have to think about how does this connect to you? Hey everyone, welcome back. It's Ashley and I have all the excitement and nerves for this episode today. I'm joined by Matt Abrahams. He's a lecturer of strategic communication at Stanford Graduate School of Business, host of one of my favorite podcasts, Think Fast, Talk Smart, author of two books, including his latest, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. He's a coach, educator, and so much more. But beyond that, somebody whose work I value greatly, and I'm truly honored to have as a guest here on the show with me. So with that, Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here. Ashley, thank you. Your your words are very kind. I'm excited for our conversation. Likewise, and definitely have a lot of questions I want to get into. But first, I just want to say too, for a little context, I launched this podcast a couple years ago, and it was truly an intentional and big step out of my comfort zone. Communication is hard (laughs) and we need it. You know, it fuels our relationships and and builds connections and allows us to express our feelings and thoughts and all the vulnerable stuff. And so here I am with a leading expert in this space, nervous, understandably so, and would love to ask before we get into our conversation, if we could first break the ice and do 15 seconds or so of the shout the wrong name game. Ah, sure. Do you want to explain how the game goes or do you want me to do it? (laughs) Well, I thought that we would play the game and then afterwards we could talk about what we just did and why it's helpful. I love it. I'm all for it. Whenever you're ready, I'm ready to go. I'm going to point to things in my, my space here. Right where we're at. Okay. So ready, set, go. Peanut butter, car, light, phone, headset, balloon, beer, candle, fire extinguisher, pan, level. All right. (laughs) Excellent. That was fun. That was super fun. I really appreciate you doing that. As someone who has been on this journey of overcoming performance pressure. Sure. I have found this exercise to be extremely helpful and freeing. So would love if you would just explain to those listening what this game is all about and how it helps sure. us get out of our heads. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, I have done quite a few podcasts uh, around the, my book release and you are the first person to ask me to play the game. So thank you. I enjoy it. I love so that. this game from my teaching colleague and good friend, his name is Adam Tobin. He is a screen. He teaches screenwriting at Stanford. Uh, where I teach, and he's a master improviser. And so the game is called Shout the Wrong Name, and it's really designed to help us realize how much judging and evaluating that we do ourselves. For many people, what Ashley and I just did, pointing at random objects in our space, and the only rule is call them something other than what they are. And when I do this with my students, it's amazing to watch. They all struggle at some level. And when I ask them about what makes it so hard, they, they reveal a lot about themselves. They're like, I feel, I feel uncomfortable in public saying something that's wrong. It's hard for me to think quickly. And then I, I investigate further and I'll ask them, you know, how, did you find any tricks or things that, that tended to help you? And, and everybody comes up with what in the book I talk about as heuristics. These are patterns that we use to help us solve challenging situations. So people sometimes will get in categories. 
animals, colors, things that start with the letter P. Other times people use opposites. I'm going to look at the ceiling and call it the floor. The floor becomes the ceiling. Other times people borrow what they hear from somebody else. And we talk about how heuristics are helpful. Heuristics can help us in many ways in our lives, but they also pigeonhole us. When I start seeing something in a certain pattern, it means I'm not seeing other things. And so in the book and, and in this process, I talk a lot about how heuristics can be helpful, but we also have to be able to dial them down. And the most important lesson, and I know I'm going on a long time here, Ashley, is, uh, and I'll, I'll get this to this lesson through a story. This really happened. We were playing this game in my class and there was a, a young man who was pointing at a chair and nothing was coming out of his mouth. And, you know, as a teacher, when you see somebody doing something like that, you approach and say, what's going on? And he said to me, I'm not being wrong enough. I'm not being wrong enough. And what's fascinating about this is I give no rules around how to be wrong. I just say, shout the wrong name. The only rule is not call it what it is. I say, don't point at people and don't say anything that's offensive. Those are the rules. And he was saying, I'm not wrong enough. So he was evaluating against some rubric he was carrying around. And I said, tell me more. He goes, well, I was going to call the chair a cat, but a cat has four legs and a chair has four legs. Sometimes a cat sits in a chair. Do you see the machinations he was going through, the judging and evaluating? And that's the power of this activity. It illuminates for us just how much we are in our heads judging and evaluating. He could easily have pointed to the chair and called it a cat. Nobody would have noticed. He would have been very successful, yet he was hampering himself. And that's the power of this activity. So it sounds like you've played this before, Ashley. Have you noticed it's getting easier over time? Have you have you found yourself following patterns? What, what's your experience been? It's really interesting because I could tell when I first started it, I was almost thinking, I was thinking about yeah. what I would, what I'm going to call out, yeah. what words are going to come up. Right. The second time that I did it, tried to let go, but then I fell into those patterns where yeah. if I'm right now, if I'm in the kitchen, I'm looking at something, it's, if it's not the kitchen, maybe it's, it's an apple or something that's in the kitchen, right. these associations. Right. but the more and more that I'm practicing this, and I actually like to do this often because yeah. it helps me to just get out of my head. And something that I've struggled with before is that this makes me good at this thing, or I have to get it right. I have to do this. Yeah. So it's so interesting. The only way we could get it wrong is by, <laughs> is yeah. by doing that. That's right. Yes. So I love, I love that you've seen an evolution and I love that you're practicing this because it does exact its purpose is to do exactly what you're saying to get you out of your head. So you started like most people stockpiling. Here's a game. I'm going to pre-plan because that's going to help me. But just like heuristics, pre-planning locks you into a way of being, which in many aspects of our life is a good thing. You know, it's it's useful to plan in advance. But in the moment when we do what I call spontaneous speaking, which is most of our communication, it can lock us into a way of thinking that gets us in trouble. Let me give you an example. Imagine you ask me for feedback. You come, We come out of a meeting together and you say, Matt, how did that go? I'd like some feedback. And I immediately hear, Ashley wants feedback. Well, you did this wrong. You could have done this better. We should have done this. But that's because I locked into, oh, she wants feedback. But had I really listened and observed, maybe I noticed you came out of the back door, not the front door. Maybe you were looking down and spoke a little more quietly. What you really wanted in that moment was not feedback. You wanted support. 
But because I flipped into, I heard the word feedback, that's all I did. I went into my heuristic. Okay, when I ask, somebody asked for feedback, here are all the things we could do better, et cetera. I might've done damage for our relationship. I might've actually hurt you by itemizing all these things when in fact what you wanted was support. So heuristics can lock us into a way of thinking and a way of communicating that in some circumstances actually precludes us from doing what's really needed in that moment. So I'm not saying heuristics are bad. I'm saying we need to see them for what they are, and then we can choose to invoke them or not, rather than just knee-jerk reaction reflexively go into those heuristics. And that's what this game teaches us. It teaches us to see the heuristics, and then as what's happening for you, to become aware so you can follow them or not. You might look at the kitchen and say, I'm going to talk about things in the kitchen, or I'm looking at the kitchen and I'm going to actually just say whatever comes to my mind. That's a choice. And in that moment, that choice becomes very important. Totally. But like you're just saying, it creates more awareness. But I wanted to make this tie because my my elevator pitch on the Endurance Diaries podcast, this podcast is all about going beyond the surface of our successes into endless possibilities in the process, because life doesn't always go as we plan. And (laughs) Really? That's how, that's, that. how we, yeah. that's how we build endurance <laughs> to keep going, Matt. That's the, yes, yes that's the absolutely. But I think that there's a lot of unique ties between your work and the heart behind this podcast, going back to what you just said about planning communication. So we do that often in whether we're in school or business, personal relationships. And so we practice, but just like everything that, that you teach, and that's yeah. the core of your book. Most of our communication is spontaneous. So there's three topics that I want to focus on in our conversation today that I believe are relevant and applicable in communication in life. Overcoming anxiety and performance pressure, learning to surrender the outcome, and then mm. creating space for connection by storytelling. So how does how does that those are three great topics? I I, (laughs) I look forward to to hearing what I come up with to answer some of those. Awesome, awesome. Those are great. Those are great. Really excited. Really, really excited for this. So the first one, overcoming anxiety and performance pressure. We talked a bit about that just through the game Mm -hmm. that we played. Anxiety looks different, you know, for each of us, but there's no escaping it, right? We all experience some levels of anxiety. I think you speak to this in your book. And it's actually can be a good thing, right? Hmm. Absolutely. So anxiety looms large in our communication. And I believe it's those of us who study it believe it's innate to being human. We see it across all cultures. And we see at a very specific time in humans growth, where it really starts developing. When kids move into the early teen years is when we really see a spike in anxiety around communicating in front of others. And it stays on a pretty steady trend upward and then plateaus. So we believe it's part of being human. Now, I wanna be very clear that I don't believe we can ever overcome our anxiety, nor do I think we should want to. Anxiety around communicating is a good thing. It gives us energy, helps us focus, tells us what we're doing is important, but we wanna learn to manage it so it doesn't manage us. And so it's really about invoking techniques that can help us manage the anxiety and harness the benefits that the anxiety actually affords us. So there are lots of things we can do and I'm happy to dive into some of those, but at the highest level, We have to manage both symptoms and sources. Symptoms are the things we experience when we're nervous and sources are the things that initiate and exacerbate our anxiety. 
you give a lot of practical tools. One of my favorites being reframing anxiety as excitement, which I do think that's quite hard to grasp onto when you're feeling it. Right. You speak more to this. Sure. So this is research that was done by my friend and colleague. She's at Harvard's Business School. Her name's Allison Woods Brooks. And uh, earlier in her career, she studied this notion. And, and if you think about it, the physiological responses we have to anxiety, which are really based around threat, we, we feel when we speak, we're under threat. Uh, it's increased heart rate. Uh, we begin to perspire. We blush. This response, this is just our body's normal reaction to threat. But really, it's just our response to any kind of stimulus that could be threatening, but it could also be exciting. You know, if I went to Allison, uh, I'm sorry, Ashley, Allison's the one who did the research. If I went to Ashley and said, uh, hey, you've got to give a speech in 10 minutes, get, get ready. Heart rate would go up, you'd begin to perspire, you might get a little shaky. But if I came to you, Ashley, and said, hey, guess what? You just won the lottery. Your heart rate would go up, you'd begin to get shaky and sweaty all at the same time. Your body has one response that we are labeling as positive or negative. In the terms of the speech, you're like, oh, crap. In terms of the lottery, you're like, oh, yay. So part of it has to do, and the insights of Allison's research is, it's how we label the physiological response that impacts the way we feel. So what she did is she trained people before they had to give a speech where they would invoke anxiety to think about in what ways is this exciting? In what ways are the outcomes exciting or is the opportunity to share your points of view exciting? And when you begin to see this as exciting and and say, hey, these feelings I'm having are feelings of excitement, it turns out our anxiety goes down and our performance goes up. So we can begin to re-envision the feelings to actually help us manage some of the anxiety. And you're right. It's not It's not like, oh, Matt just said it. Now I can do it. You have to actually practice it, but it makes a big difference. I, I see my students all the time saying, hey, I'm getting excited about this. And then it becomes self-fulfilling because you do it and it goes well. And you're like, wow, next time I'm going to be even more excited because it went well. So it, we just have to have that leap of faith that it can help. For sure. It's so helpful to be aware of what it is that you're feeling. And I think sometimes I know for me, I've experienced this where you just kind of go into a panic and it's like, okay, well, let me feel this first. Okay. What is it that physiological feeling and experience is the same. So I love that to be able to reframe it. And we also just, we see how powerful our minds are to create that shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if listeners are interested in this stuff, uh, one of my guests and a col- uh, also a colleague at Stanford, her name is Aaliyah Crum, and she does amazing research on how framing, how we see things can change our behavior. Uh, and it's it's just fascinating. She did a study along with Ellen Langer, who is a, a, a just a very famous psychologist, where they looked at uh, people who clean hotel rooms. So the, the people who go in and clean the different rooms. And when those people were asked, you know, how much exercise do you get? They said, we don't do much exercise, you know, because we're so busy at work. And then what they did is they educated them about how much exercise they were actually getting, doing the work they did, cleaning the rooms. And all of a sudden, people who had that information began to feel healthier, not only feel healthier, but their physiological measures actually improved. Just by labeling their work as exercise, they began to feel better, get more fit, et cetera. So the way we perceive our experience 
changes physiologically what we experience and how we feel. It's fascinating, this line of research. And the same is true with what Allison did in terms of excitement versus anxiety and speaking. That is definitely something I'm very interested in and fascinated by. So really appreciate you sharing. I mean, something I think about too is, can we think our way into a feeling and vice versa? You know, can we feel our way into thoughts, right? And how that actually influences what our experience of something is, regardless of the outcome. Can I share my favorite research with you? It has nothing to do with anything I do, but it's exactly what you're talking about. It's it's embodied consciousness. So um, there was some research done at Duke University where they the only thing they manipulated was the 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 temperature of coffee. So the the experiment went something like this. I come up to you and I say, uh, I I have this big satchel I'm carrying and I ask you to hold my coffee. And I say, I'm going to pull out a psychology test here. Would you mind holding my coffee? The only thing they varied was the temperature of the coffee. You either held warm coffee or iced coffee. And then you were asked to do a personality assessment of me. How warm am I? How nice is of a person am I? How, How, what are your perceptions? If you held a warm cup of coffee, you saw me as a warmer, nicer person. And if you felt held a cold cup of coffee, you saw me as more distant and cold. Isn't that fascinating? Our perceptions of others are dictated by just the, the temperature of the room we're in or something we hold. If you want somebody to feel more comfortable, you sit them on a chair that's comfy that's padded versus if you want uh, somebody to feel more, you know, on the spot, you put them in a chair that's hard. The what we physically feel, the feel, the temperature affects how we emotionally feel. I find this stuff fascinating. I know I'm Likewise. taking it. <laughs> I love that. Amazing? Yes, yeah. it, it really is amazing. It is so fascinating when you think of these like external factors and stimuli and how that influences yeah our experience and how we're thinking and our perceptions, because it does. And we can leverage some of that to help ourselves. So we can then see speaking where I'm nervous is exciting. So we can take those same things that happen to us that we might not be aware of and begin to use them as tools to help us achieve the goals we want to achieve. I know that you are a practitioner of of martial arts. Mm -hmm. So the second thing learning to surrender the outcome. I uh, was a former, I like to consider myself, I'm still an athlete, but growing up, that was my story. Always striving, always wanting to achieve. I had big goals, big dreams. And, And so I really wanted to talk about this because something that you said is, we have a goal and we we wanna achieve it. And what makes us nervous is the potential of not achieving it and this yes. potential negative future outcome. So when when we communicate, we have goals and it makes sense to have goals. And in fact, I encourage people to have goals. Goals are very important. The problem is when you set a goal, you also set a desired outcome to achieve that goal. And in, in setting that desired outcome, you can become very nervous about not achieving it. So goals and intentions are important. Having a purpose is important, but not being wedded to them is also important. So it sends you on a direction, but if I'm fixated on it and need to achieve it, then it can actually put a lot of pressure. So as you said, a goal is nothing more than a potential future outcome. And when we are nervous about it, what we're afraid of is that outcome being negative, a negative potential future outcome. So the best way to most likely achieve the goal in a positive way 
is to be present oriented, to be in the moment. Because by definition, if I'm in the moment, I'm not worried about the future. And there are lots of ways to get present oriented. My hunch is when you were playing basketball competitively, there were some rituals that your team would do or you would do to get you very present oriented. So sometimes coaches have you run liners or layups or whatever, or where people are passing you the ball, where you have to focus, otherwise you're going to miss or get hit by the ball. That's part of that is not only to warm up your body, but to warm up your mind by focusing on the present. And there are a lot of things we can do as communicators to focus on the present. Before you and I started recording this, we we did some chit chat. That's a way I get present oriented. I listen to the person. I get really focused. So I'm not worried about the future. Uh, you can do something physical, walk around the building, listen to a song or a playlist. We see athletes do this all the time as they're warming up. They've got their headphones on. My favorite way to get present oriented, this sounds crazy, is to say tongue twisters. I know it, yeah. (laughs) You can't say a tongue tongue twister right without being present oriented. And it warms up your voice. Many of us, before we speak, we we don't say anything. And you as an athlete know that you have to warm up. Otherwise, you get hurt. We somehow think we can go from silence to brilliance in our communication without warming up, which to me seems strange, right? I'm old, so I have to stretch and warm up before I exercise. But- Y'all should should do it when you speak. So being present oriented is a great way. I love how you say it, to surrender your goal, to to be open to whatever comes in the future by being present oriented. I do want to bring something up that I think is very interesting. Strive for mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. Yes. What do you mean by this? (laughs) Yes, I, 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 I always love when people ask this question. So I have the audacity to tell my Stanford MBA students, some of the best and brightest young business minds in the world, to maximize mediocrity. And they look at me like I'm crazy because nobody in these the lives of these students have ever told them to just be mediocre. But here, here's the here's the rationale. When I am constantly judging and evaluating what I am saying, I am actually using precious cognitive bandwidth that could be better used connecting to people, could be better used making sure my messages land. Your brain is like a computer. It's not a perfect analogy, but you know, if you have lots of apps open on your phone or tabs open on your your laptop, your computer is not performing as optimally as possible. Each of those apps or or tabs is performing less than optimal because you have so many open. Your brain is the same way. If I'm constantly judging and evaluating, my precious resources are split. So when I just say, I'm just going to get it done, I'm just going to answer the question, I'm just going to give the feedback, I'm just going to introduce myself, I reduce that pressure, therefore giving me more bandwidth to actually do it well. So the full saying I tell my students by the end of my first class is maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. And it is in that freeing yourself from all of that judgment that it helps. Now, I am certainly not saying we should not judge anything we say. We do but we need to turn that volume down a little bit. It's not binary. It's not judge everything or judge nothing. There's some room in there and we have to just lower that, uh, what we do. And that's what really can free us up to really connect and be present and accomplish the goal. So I have this trite little saying, strive for connection, not perfection. And in so doing, you actually free yourself up to do better. That's so good. I, I love that. And I think about too, when it comes to goal setting as well, where Mm -hmm. once we hit that goal, then what? It's almost like you're capping yourself and you're creating this limitation. And so I like to try to reframe that, which is very similar to this, I think, where when we have this more of an open posture, 
the possibilities and the wins and all of these other things we can learn about ourselves and how we can connect with other people in that by taking that pressure off and not being so tied to just this one goal. That's right. Because in, in that moment, possibility exists, you know, whenever you lock yourself into one thing, by definition, you're restricting other things. And a lot of what happens in connection and relationships in the moment is we have to adjust and adapt. So, you know, there's, there's a saying that says essentially something like planning is critical, but plans are useless, right? So, so the process of preparation is important, but locking in on one plan restricts you from what you do. And as an athlete in basketball, you did a lot of training and a lot of drilling so that in the moment you could respond to what was necessary. And that's the key to spontaneous speaking for sure. So good. I love these connections, really. Um, Last one here is creating space for connection by storytelling. Now, this is the heartbeat of this podcast. My goal was really to bring guests on, which I have, to share their stories. And I believe that the possibility that somebody's story could could impact somebody else makes it worth sharing. And Mm -hmm. I've heard you say before that our brains love stories. So could you elaborate on that and why we need storytelling? I love how you say it's the heartbeat of the podcast. That's, that's beautiful. I might steal that for my podcast. So, so yes. So when we communicate, we need to package our information up in a way that is helpful to the people we're speaking to. Many of us, when we communicate, especially in the moment, we take people on a journey of our discovery of what we're saying while we're saying it. In other words, we just itemize and list a whole bunch of stuff. And our brains are not wired to process lists of information. I challenge you and any of your listeners to think about how many items can you carry in your mind when you have to go grocery shopping before you actually have to create the list. For most of us, it's like five or six. And after that, I better write it down or I'm going to forget something. Our brains just aren't wired for lists. Our brains are actually wired for story. In fact, long-term memory is called episodic memory. Episodes, that's what we remember. A logical beginning, middle, and an end. And so when we communicate, if we can package our information up in a structure It can really help us as the person crafting the message because it gives us a direction and prioritization. And for our audience, it packages it in a way that they can digest better. So I encourage everybody to think about ways of structuring their messages. Let me be very clear what I mean by a structure. All of us who've ever watched a television ad or had to pitch any idea to anybody have probably used the structure problem, solution, benefit. Here's some issue, problem, or challenge. Here's how I suggest we solve it. And then here's the benefit of doing so. The next time you watch a television ad, if people watch TV anymore, you'll see that this is what, this is how it works. So having something in that structure, sometimes we call them stories. Sometimes we call them narratives. To me, it's just a logical connection of ideas. That's how our brains work. And it helps us because we, as the storytellers, if you will, just have to think about how do I tell a story that's relevant and impactful to the person I'm speaking to? So it invites us to be other focused, which is the foundational principle of communication. We have to be empathetic. We have to be in service of our audience. If I tell you a story from my perspective, that might not resonate. So I have to think about how does this connect to you? So storytelling invites empathy, which invites connection, which invites trust, And all of that becomes this virtuous cycle. 
I think it can also help to empower people to share their stories and really think about these things of, of value within them that they can offer as a gift to somebody else, which I believe our stories are. I 100% agree. You know, what motivates my work is is really remembering that everybody has an important story to tell. And we just need what I what motivates what I do is I just want to help people feel comfortable sharing their stories. And I love that you have a similar uh, focus on on what you do. Uh, and, and sharing a platform where people can share those stories is really important. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. A couple of other things I just sure. wanted to to ask you as an expert communicator. Huh. What My is, wife disagree, by the way. But go ahead. <laughs> what is one thing that you think people wrongly assume about you? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I think people wrongly assume that I don't get nervous. I do get nervous in certain circumstances. It's far less than it used to be, but I do get nervous. I do need to uh, spend some time centering myself and getting more confident. But yes, uh, I do get nervous when I communicate. <laughs> there you go. It's again, it comes for all of us, even the best in, in these spaces. So so this podcast, again, as you mentioned before, has a core message, right? That we all have the power within us to persevere. You are a lecturer at Stanford. You host a podcast. You just released your new book. You're doing a lot of interviews. You put out a lot of content. What inspires you to keep going and keep showing up to this work? I have seen in my own life and in the life of others, the value of sharing our personal perspective store and stories. I believe everybody's voice is valuable and we need to hear those voices. And many people, for whatever reason, uh, internal anxiety, life experience, perceptions of certain people in, in groups, those stories get silenced. And I am on a personal mission to help people feel more comfortable and confident to share their stories so we can learn, we can grow, we can collaborate. And that's what motivates me. And I have seen it in the students I teach and the people I coach and that's what, and, and the people who listen to the podcast and read the books. And that's what really motivates me. And that's why I do what I do. Well, your work is truly valued. I'm an avid listener of your podcast, almost through the book. I have it on Audible. Oh, good. So you, yeah. you're, you're probably sick of hearing my voice. A little bit. Not going to, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's no, fine. Honesty is a good thing. I love how you end your podcast by asking your guests three questions. So yes. instead of three questions, I would like to wrap up this episode by asking you to complete three sentences. Okay. For me. All right. Okay. Let me, let me see if I can think fast and talk smart. <laughs> Let's see. All right. So number one, getting out of your own head starts by focusing on others and their needs. The key to effective communication is being audience centric. Those two are very similar, but that's, that, that's true. This is thinking fast and talking smart. So, okay. The last one here, storytelling has the power to change the world. I love that, Matt. Thank you so much. This has been incredible. Really appreciate your, your time and joining me. I know that I will continue to grow and I know that there's millions of other people who also find value in your work. So thank you so much. I encourage those listening to check out Matt's new book, Think Fast Talks, Think Faster, Faster Talk, Talk Smarter. Talk smarter. And check out the podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart. That was fun. I really appreciated your questions and collaborating with you on, on creating this content uh, together. And I, I really appreciated it.